This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we talked to the head of the House Tourism Committee about the deep cuts to the marketing budget of the Hawaii Tourism Authority and the move to revamp it. Representative Richard Onishi is from the Big Island. He outlined the House support for HTA, but felt some of the criticism was misdirected and should have been levied against the Department of Land and Natural Resources. Onishi also shed some light on the political maneuvering in the final days of the session. We were not supportive of any reductions in functionality or in staffing, but we needed to make adjustments. As you probably know, the legislature decided not to do grants and aids last year and this year. And so we felt it was not a good policy to allow HTA to put out grants and aids, which they do for cultural and community projects. So we reined some of that in. We reined in some of the sports funds that they were paying for sports sporting events. We felt it was appropriate to make those adjustments, but not to staffing or functionality. Senator Wakai seemed concerned that uh, HTA wasn't moving fast enough to respond to you know, some of the concerns that local residents had about over-tourism and felt that we just were missing the opportunity because we had the shutdown and, and more could have been done during that time. Do you agree? You know, HTA has very little authority or direct responsibility for the many areas that residents feel are being impacted by visitors and local residents' use. So I don't understand, you know, because a lot of those areas fall on either the county or DLNR in terms of management. You don't hear the same outcry to them or about them not being, not managing those, what they call hotspots. It's not an HTA function to actually manage those hotspots. They fall under DLNR or the counties. You know, I was with Chris Tatum when we tried to address the parking and the traffic and the visitor impact on Lanikai Beach and, you know, tried to bring all of the players together to come up to some kind of an agreement on how to address it, both with the residents, the county, the State Department of Transportation, DLNR. You know, it's a very long and arduous process to get everybody to agree to solutions. But HTA has no authority in that area except to try to bring people together. So I'm not really sure what the Senate means we haven't addressed issues. I think their cultural program has been very effective in looking at the preservation of the Hawaiian language and Hawaiian arts and culture. The community effort in the DMAPs have been a step in the right direction, trying to get community input in terms of impact areas and how to address them. Most recently, I saw in the news last night about Popolu Point in Kohala and disagreeing with residents, landowners, and uh, the department and the legislature as to how the traffic and visitor impact should be addressed there. HDA has no authority there. Well, then if not HDA, then who? Wakai seems to think that there needed to be some kind of statewide plan and some of this is just more knee-jerk reaction. Uh, you know, there have been some attempts to put in reservation systems in areas, but his take on it is it's just we're moving too slow. It's because DLNR works so slowly. The work that was done on Kauai facilitated through HTA, but HTA had no authority there to, to do anything, to make a reservation system, to determine how many parking stalls would be allocated to visitors and what the fees were going to be. They just facilitated that whole process in order to try to address the community's concerns. Again, it was a DLNR issue. In two years, I've been trying to tell advocates that they need to put more emphasis on the work that DLNR is doing. DLNR has all the authority in order to manage and to determine what kinds of fees or uh, visitor counts would make difference at some of these hotspots. They've chosen not to address it. Now, HTA you know, is uh, doing the uh, action plan outreach to the various counties. They're focusing on Oahu this month. What's your take on timetable for that? 
Again, it's just a plan and facilitating a plan, but it takes many people to execute the plan. So, you know, it is trying to bring all of the stakeholders together to talk about the issues and come up with ideas and plans on how to address them. HTA has no authority except for marketing. We've given them funds to help support community efforts, sporting events, major events in our community, and Hawaiian cultural and language. But that's the extent of their capacity. That's the extent of their authority. And the mismanagement by DLNR over decades has led to these issues. You know, look at Hanama Bay. Hanama Bay is the perfect example of an early plan that was developed by the city in protecting Hanama Bay and managing the resource there in terms of visitors, both local and from out of state. Look at all our national parks, Pearl Harbor, the Volcano National Park. They're all being managed by the people who are responsible for that particular national park, that particular hotspot. ELNR has the responsibility of managing our shorelines, our trails, our beach parks, our state parks their responsibility, not HTAs. I fail to understand how people cannot make that distinction between the two responsibilities. Well, what happens to the action plan that HTA is working on? The LNR is included. The county is included. All stakeholders are invited to attend and to participate. Now, whether or not DLNR will do something, it's really up to DLNR. HT cannot force DLNR to do anything. Where do you stand on this move to have the counties raise the hotel room tax on each island? Do you support that? The House introduced it at the end as a replacement for the surcharge that the Senate put in. So don't be mistaken. The Senate gave the counties the first shot at raising TAT funds. The House has always believed that the counties, the $103 million we have asked numerous times for an accountability on how they're using that to address visitor impact. We haven't gotten anything. We've asked the same thing about the $3 million that is given to DLNR for visitor impact. We've gotten nothing until just before the 2019 session because we were going to take it away. We've introduced bills over the last three or four years to take away the county's allocation from the TAT, specifically to try to force them to give us an accounting. And they never have. So this year, again, because of the budget and the lack of revenue, we felt it was appropriate to eliminate the county's uh, allocation to the TAT. The Senate in, I believe it was House Bill 321, gave the counties a surcharge for up to five years. And the House, when, when we consolidated HB 321 and House Bill 862, we decided that instead of giving them a surcharge, which the state would have to collect and then allocate to the counties, we felt if they wanted TAT money, they should should go and approve it themselves. So that's where that proposal came from. And how do you think that's going to benefit Hawaii Island? It's up to them. they got to come up with a plan. Now, I don't run the county, so I can't tell the county what they should do. The House position was that the work that HTA has been doing, especially over the last, well, since my term, the last five years at least, has been in line with trying to to support Mm -hmm. more Hawaiian culture and language, getting the community more and more involved in the issues surrounding visitor impact and also addressing the various marketing issues from visitors from out of state. Do you think the governor's going to veto the bill? you have any sense? I hope not because, you know, if the governor vetoes the bill, it reverts back to the allocation from the TAT, which he suspended, you know. That, in my mind, also didn't make any sense. I understand we were not getting very much income. To have completely eliminated any kind of revenue to HTA, I think, was inappropriate. That was Representative Richard Onishi, head of the House Tourism Committee, talking about the legislative efforts to revamp the Hawaii Tourism Authority. It has cut HTA's budget by $19 million.
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be featuring a talk I gave in the summer of 2014 about thriving in chaotic times. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. You may know that a coveted Oscar went to a documentary film entitled My Octopus Teacher. It previously won an Academy Award. Take a listen to the trailer. People say an octopus is like an alien. But the strange thing is, as you get closer to them, you realize that we're very similar in a lot of ways. You're stepping into this completely different world. Octopus Teacher was filmed in South Africa. It tells the tale of a friendship between a man and an octopus. It's directed by Pippa Ehrlich and James Reed and produced by Craig Foster. But there's a Hawaii connection. We caught up with Lou Herman, political philosophy professor at University of Hawaii, West Oahu. He was tapped as a consultant, but his interviews and that of another were left on the cutting room floor as the film morphed. It narrowed its focus on Herman's friend and colleague, Craig Foster's relationship with an octopus. You know, I think the main star is the octopus and the ocean. And, uh, and they, Craig and Pippa, like the interview, you know, because what I do as a philosopher and a teacher, you know, political activist, is explain things and make connections, you know, between the small story and the big story and larger situation. But that doesn't necessarily belong in the film. You know, the film can speak for itself up to a point. And the uh, connection that you made then as a consultant for this film was mm. what? Well, you know, our, most of our problems in global industrial civilization can be traced to this absolute disconnection from wilderness and the wild natural world, which we now know through science and their evolutionary epic actually made us. We are wilderness made. And so I think there's, there's a deep hunger and a sense that, that the direction for healing comes from this reconnection with the natural world, especially wild nature. I mean, everything about our lives, 99% of our lives, is, is lived indoors, surrounded by stuff that we make, that is human-made. And we forget that the most important relationship to reality is what made us, you know, which we know is the natural world and what keeps us alive. And so I think, you know, even though people don't articulate it and certainly not part of the ideology of industrial society, I think there's a, there's a real, um, you know, unconscious sense that this is what we're missing. And you wrote a book. Yeah, mm-hmm. Future Primal, uh, very much on this theme. The subtitle is How Wilderness Origins Show Us the Way Forward. And then it's an attempt to really develop this idea and what would a politics and an ethics and a sort of spiritual, personal practice look like 
as based on reconnecting with wilderness on a on a, a feeling basis, on an experiential, you know, a direct experienced connection, not something theoretical, but something lived. So and what it would look like and how things would change, you know, economically and in our educational system and our health system and the way we organize our cities and so on and so on. So, you know, with that thought, so it just made sense that you were working on this documentary with Craig. Right. Right. I mean, we've been connecting on this theme for a while. I've known Craig for over 20 years, and he was working on another film with the loss of the nomadic hunter-gatherers of the Kalahari, the Sun Bushman. And my trips back to South Africa, and I'm originally South African, had you know, deepened my sense that there's something profound in this connection to South African nature. And I heard about Craig's work, and we planned to produce a film together on this theme, which would be a sequel to this film that he made in The Sun Bushman. And so since then, we've been, every year, we'd go back and work with him for sometimes a couple of months uh, and just spend time and brainstorm projects. And then we wrote two grants just recently, actually, to take some Hawaii students back to that kelp forest as a sort of pilgrimage back home and film it. Right, and they would be the students there from UH West Oahu? Yeah, I mean, that was the initial idea. We'd take our students, you know, but others would be eligible to apply. You know, we, we didn't work out the details of the logistics, but that was the basic idea. Right, but it's uh, the same kelp forest where the film was made. Exactly. You know, and, and uh, when we wrote these descriptions, when we wrote these grants, we, we had no idea Octopus Teacher was going to be so globally acclaimed. You know, Craig was just in the um, early stages of negotiating with Netflix, and it wasn't clear how what the relationship was going to be, or even if they'd pick it up. And then it just exploded and became huge. Well, when I first saw the trailer, I must admit, I felt so guilty when I ate, you know, my taco poke afterwards. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we have an ambiguous relationship to the to the wild, and it's uh, it's important to feel a little guilt. Well, too much. I mean, it depends on how sustainably it's harvested, you know, but it, you, get, you get the feeling now that all of this is so threatened. You know, the oceans are on the knife edge of, of spiraling down into uh, ecocide, ocean ecocide. Well, the first time that I actually <clears throat> saw an octopus swimming, uh-huh. I was just so amazed. It was just, you know, fabulous <clears throat> to see it out there. I know. They're such unique creatures. You know, it's as if, you know, the whole ecosystem has to be populated by creatures, each one absolutely uniquely adapted to its its place, you know. So <laughs> there's this creature, an octopus, which can crawl and swim and, you know, actually get out of the water and onto land. And yet looks like, you know, it's this sort of space creature, this, uh, you know, elegant bit of fabric you know, moving in the water. <laughs> And so your relationship then with octopus, I don't know, do you eat taco poke? <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but okay. not for ideological reasons. Uh-huh. <laughs> there are other foods that I prefer, and I wouldn't eat it now, you know, just because it's, you know, I have such a, a personal appreciation for the animal, and the taste is not like, you know, I'm compelling. I don't have to have the taste of taco poke. Okay. There are other things to eat, if you know what I mean. There are too many other things to eat. <laughs> I'm going to figure out what I can eliminate. Well, now, do you have, I don't know, a favorite part in the film? I, I love the ending where they find a little baby octopus that could have been one of the children. I like, you know, the drama of the, the octopus surviving the attack by the pajama sharks, you know, which makes it an action movie. So I love the image where the octopus is dancing with that shoal of fish. And you realize that, you know, even an animal supposedly as simple as, as an octopus is capable of, of play, you know, and celebration and just uh, the joy of moving its limbs. And, you know, just getting into the water is a pretty intense experience. Just getting into that freezing water and knowing that it's full of predators. It's one of the most predator-dense ocean ecosystems anywhere. You know, it's full of great whites uh, and even some orcas. And seals, of course, you know, and uh, stingrays, and you know, a whole host of other really impressive megafauna. 
Well, you were able to also share that with the crew of the Hokulea, right? Right. Yeah, I introduced, I had the honor of briefing them before they went to Cape Point and hooked up with Craig. They were the relief crew, and I showed them clips of Craig's films and uh, talked a little bit about the unique complementary relationship between South Africa and Hawaii. You know, that they're really complementary opposites, South Africa being the site of human origins and some of the oldest land in the world, and also home to, you know, probably in a sense, the oldest indigenous culture on the planet, the Sun Bushmen which have a sort of cultural continuity going back about 40,000 years. And then Hawaii being at exactly the opposite end of the planet and uh, being host to you know, some of the newest land in the world and one of the, the newest indigenous cultures. I mean, in, in a sense, all our cultures go back to human origins, but Hawaiian culture, Native Hawaiian culture as a distinct expression of Polynesian culture, you know, uniquely adapted to these islands and these lifeways is relatively young. And so this idea, you know, of reviving Polynesian navigation, which is really a kind of a highly sophisticated shamanic art attunement to, to ocean and to nature and stars, heavens and weather, to guide them back to the point of origins of the whole human journey out of Africa, I think is a very powerful moment in the history of the islands, in the history of the indigenous renaissance, and in a way in the history of, of our species. You know, it's really an opportunity for a, a massive species wake up. You'd like this, uh, this Oscar-winning film then to maybe underscore some of, of what you've been studying for all this time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, our work converges. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's what we we working on. I, I made the trip in 2017, 2018 with uh, Georgia Thompson, who's actually um, an alumnus of UH West Oahu and now a um, graduate student in uh, communications at Manoa. And she's been working in parallel with me, trying to craft ways of getting this, you know, what could be seen as a sort of uh, esoteric or, or radical vision of of a human future out to the masses, out to uh, a wide general audience. And, um, you know, when we were there in 2017, 2018, you know, she along with I were consulted about this, about how to sort of position this and how this, the, the singular achievement could help wake people up to our global situation, our global crisis, the crisis of the oceans, and also in a way a, a moral and political crisis. Uh, that we you know, are becoming increasingly aware of globally in our country and, uh, and globally, and the need for you know, resacralizing our connection to the natural world. So you're hoping then that the octopus story will do that? Very much, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think it could be a catalyst. I think it, it could be a huge moment. You know, it's a very simple story. It's very unthreatening. Kids love it. It's a family-friendly movie. You know, it's sort of a happy ending. Um, and you see the small story of, of this wilderness immersion. You know, Craig was diving every single day, winter and summer. The weather's harsh over there, and the ocean is freezing, you know, nine degrees you know, centigrade. It's really, really cold. And in the process, you know, he was going through uh, a really rough time before. Uh, he'd finished a, a number of epic movies and was burnt out, and it was affecting his relationships. And he talks about in the mo- movie his relationship with his son, and, uh, you know, through just going back to uh, immersion in a very simple relationship to the oceans from whence all life comes, as we now know, uh, and then the creatures in this remarkably intact wilderness ecosystem. I mean, that's one of the extraordinary things about the coastline of South Africa is how much of the original wilderness or sense of that original wilderness remains, you know, primarily in the ocean. You know, the big animals, the megafauna have been mostly killed off along the coastline. But that was the coastline where you had, you know, lions, leopards, rhino, hippo, elephants coming down to the beaches, and the hippos would swim out the river estuaries and, uh, you know, wade into the surf and eat seaweed and so on. And, you know, most of that is gone, but the ocean remains, and you've still got the megafauna, you've still got these hugely impressive, powerful animals in the ocean. And uh, I think that had a profound effect on, on Craig personally. And he wrote a book about it with uh, Ross Freilink, 
called Sea Change, which is also an account of the work of the institute that he set up in the process of making this film, uh, in collaboration also with Sylvia Earle, you know, mm, yes, of, uh, right. Mission Blue. You know, uh, False Bay was declared one of the hope spots of the planet in an attempt to preserve these spots, these oases of, of ocean wilderness, um, in the hope that as, as we pull back from from this pollution and destruction of, of the ocean and the fisheries, uh, industrial strip mining of the oceans, the oceans will be able to recover. Uh, and we seem to be at that critical point. You've been hearing from Lou Herman, author and political philosophy professor at UH West Oahu. Uh, Herman Hales from South Africa. He worked as a consultant on the Oscar and Academy Award-winning documentary, My Octopus Teacher. It is now time for our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about the new interim police chief. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, lots of, uh, you know, concern about who is going to step up to take Susan Ballard's place. You know, she steps down, what, June 1st. That's right around the corner. That's right. It's coming up soon. This is uh, Christina Jedra's story, and I'm pitching for her. The interim chief, uh, or rather, he is currently an assistant chief. And he will be the interim chief, um, effective June 1st. His name is Roddy Vanek. And uh, it was unanimous, even though the police commission met behind closed doors. They did make that announcement yesterday. And, you know, uh, kind of a positive spin on this. It's someone that is a little bit unusual in that they're not a deputy chief. Uh, but John McCarthy, one of those deputy chiefs, he's on medical leave. And the other one, Aaron Takasaki Young, uh, Christina found out that apparently he's going to return to the rank of major. So you're bringing in someone who's an assistant chief to take over the top spot while the police commission uh, conducts its search for a permanent chief. Uh, my understanding from Christina's story today is that that job description will be posted soon. Well, you know, I, I know I was inquiring about the status of uh, Chief McCarthy because I thought, you know, he yeah. would step up while... Uh, uh, Chief Ballard was on uh, medical leave and then was, was told that, yeah, that he was on medical leave, but they expected him back uh, like any day. Uh, I was told he was on stress leave, but um, yeah, well, that, I guess that didn't happen. And uh, <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, uh, with Young going back down to his job as major. So interesting yeah, choice. Yeah, Takasaki Young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it bucks the trend, although one might argue that one needs to buck the trend a little bit at HPD if you've been following Christina's stories on Civil Beat. Um, really, it's been quite in turmoil uh, recently with everything that's been going on. It was only a month ago, not even, that Susan Ballard, the current chief, she got a tough performance review from the commission. I mean, they remember, the commission has the, the power to, to hire a chief. They have the power to fire a chief. And they just did not seem to have much confidence. Uh, they said that Ballard, her leadership, really lacks transparency and accountability. Uh, and that was a disappointment. Remember, they they kind of put her on. I don't want to use the word the word probation, right? But they mm -hmm. were basically going to say, you know, we're going to be keeping an eye on you. And and Chief Ballard decided, well, to heck with that. It's time to retire. And hence now, Roddy Vanek uh, to be the new chief effective June first. I believe Susan Ballard has been taking some leave as well. Right. Yeah. She uh, mentioned, uh, I guess, some medical procedure that she underwent, and I guess her recovery is taking longer than uh, than she mm -hmm. thought. And remember, this is going to still the the new the new chief, whoever that will be, is going to have to get approved by the police commission, which right now is is lacking a seventh member. There's just six members, so have to be careful there in case they split. Um, Mayor Blangiardi has expressed some interest in hiring a former mainland uh, police officer uh, to take that seventh slot. That's not for sure. He hasn't formally submitted that name to the city council. Uh, but um, in, in the case of Roddy Vanek, what Shannon Olivado had to say, and she's the chair of the police commission, they like his style. He's kind of been the public face in many ways at both the police commission meetings as well as 
city council meetings, and, and they like his, his skills, his leadership style. Uh, Shannon Olivado actually described Vanek as perfect um, to be the interim person, as, as I said, as the police commission looks for a permanent chief. Yeah, uh, Christina found out that what he he served in every bureau of the department, so he's got a good yeah, handle really... on on how the department uh, works or is supposed to work. Yeah, anyway. it's quite quite a resume, really. Been with HPD for more than two decades, and yes, uh, as she reported, served in every bureau. Uh, she, she also uh, apparently managed the professional standards office. She, mm. he rather, uh, and also was a district patrol commander. And then I think most critically, uh, oversaw administrative operations actually within the chief's office, which seemed to bring some, uh, you know, particular unique skills uh, and to the position. And uh, by the way, the photo that's uh, on our page, the the news story today, Vanek is smiling. When's the last time we saw a police chief smiling? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, so uh, he, by the way, Vanek says that he's very much looking forward to it feels that he does have a good relationship with the police commission and the city council because he will be the public face of HPD going forward in less than a month. Yeah, and I, I believe, uh, I think he got a thumbs up from the uh, police union too. Uh, so yeah, well, uh, no small thing having the endorsement of, of Shopo as well. Uh, so this uh, a lot of pressure, though, to come in, especially with these recent shootings in the Uwanu, in the McCulley area, all sorts of things going on with HPD body cams and whatnot. So what a time to be police chief of HPD, even in an interim capacity. Right. And we'll just see then what happens with the uh, uh, recommendation for the new member of the police commission. Uh, I know Blangiardi mentioned that, yeah, this was a former police uh, officer, I think from Chicago, uh, from Illinois. And uh, yeah, so we'll see what happens there and what they ultimately decide. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. All right. You're welcome. We've been talking to Chad Blair, editor with Honolulu Civil Beat, with today's reality check. To read Christina Jedra's story, head to civilbeat.org. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Today kicks off a new esports tournament being held at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. It's the first time a professional tournament is being held on a college campus, and it's the first mainstream international tournament being held here in Hawaii. HPR's Casey Harlow joins us today to tell us all about it. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. So, so tell us esports. I know you've done stories on this before, so there's a lot of buzz around this. Yeah, esports is a growing industry globally. Uh, it just reached a billion dollars not too long ago. And even with the pandemic and everything else, it's not slowing down at all. And basically, it's just competitive video gaming. Players from all around the world compete against each other to see who's the best. Okay, so how many people from Hawaii are going to be taking part in this, and who do we play against? Actually, there are no teams here in Hawaii that are in this tournament. This is sponsored by the Overwatch League. Overwatch is a very popular game globally. There are two teams, the best in the West region, the Florida Mayhem and the Dallas Fuel, a lot like a professional team. They are coming down here to Hawaii to play against the Shanghai Dragons and the Chengdu Hunters playing in China. What is really great about this esports tournament is that Activision Blizzard, who created the video game, are bringing down their staff. And they are offering a great opportunity for University of Hawaii students to get hands-on experience to see how a professional esports tournament is held, what it takes to throw on an event like this, what it takes to engineer something like this, what it takes to broadcast something like this, all from within a room. So there is a lot of opportunities there for not only the students, but also just for the state in general. Okay, so while no Hawaii students taking part in the actual esports video games, they can certainly get a real education in how an event like this is put on. Exactly. And also they get that face-to-face with professional video gamers, professional players, the coaches, the shoutcasters. And shoutcasters, just as a quick definition, are like sports commentators, sports analysts. If you watch an NFL game, right, it's going to be your Joe Buck, your Troy Aikman on Fox, right? So they will be able to have a face-to-face interaction, get their questions answered, and just interact with these people who do it for a living. So what's the big carrot for UH? 
Yes. Uh, so it is giving a lot of education opportunities for the students. It's giving recognition to the University of Hawaii because colleges all across the country are now starting to see esports as a way to attract new students, to recruit new students. And UH is actually in the process of creating a certificate program. But although some universities can offer a major in esports, Sky Calvaloa, who's the head of UH's esports task force, he doesn't believe you can really major in something, but you can have these traditional majors like communications or engineering or things like that, and then you can apply it to esports. And this is him kind of explaining that. University of Hawaii, we're planning to offer a three-course sequence in esports starting in the fall of 2021, in which I try to link the existing trends that are coming out of the esports industry to the existing curriculum that is at the University of Hawaii, and trying to make sure that we can bridge the two, because there are a lot of students who really want to actually move into the games industry here at the University of Hawaii, or looking to do doing something like that, and that could be either as community managers art directors, sound directors, something in animation. And he stressed as well, if you want to get into esports, it's good to learn another language because it's a very much an international sport. There's a lot of emphasis on Asian languages as well. Chinese, Korean, Japanese, those are very key languages in the sport as well. And so I have to ask you, because we've been hearing a lot about broadband this week, I mean, how is our infrastructure? Because, you know, other places far surpass what we can offer. Right. We are in a very interesting predicament with our infrastructure for broadband because we have to be connected to the continental U.S. or continental Asia in order to improve our broadband. Bert Lum, who I spoke to, is the state's broadband strategy officer. He says, you know, there's a lot of capacity right now on our broadband cables or fiber optic cables. But the issue is technology is always evolving. The cables that you get now, 5, 10, 15 years, like all other infrastructure, is going to age out and it's not going to be able to support that. So it's always good to get more trans-Pacific fiber optic cables. But it's not just that. It's also connecting the islands as well and building a more sustainable, resilient infrastructure here. Because so in 2020, Kauai was cut off. And that's just one example of how fragile our infrastructure is here. So the bottom line is if we want to see and enter this whole world of esports uh, and, and see it take our economy uh, somewhere, uh, we've got to invest in the infrastructure and grow that. Exactly. And again, if we invest the money right now and we invest in the broadband, then we could see hundreds of millions of dollars potentially by having developers come here and hold their tournaments. Because as Sky has mentioned to me before, there's a lot of opportunity. We are geographically a bridge from the U.S. to Asia. So we could capitalize on that as well. All right. Okay. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking to HPR's Casey Harlow. You can find his stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. There's this elusive, somewhat mystical terminology of herd immunity and herd immunity threshold. A threshold the U.S. may not be able to reach. So what really people want to know is less of what that number is, is that when can I start getting my life back? So how will public health experts and lawmakers answer that question? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org.
today's Malcolm and Mackay segment, we meet Kaleo Sampson, whose life took a sudden turn after a family visit last spring turned into a permanent move back home. Her career as a professional dancer was shut down after she found herself locked out of Australia, where she'd been producing a new show. She talked with the conversations Lillian Song about adjusting back to whole island life and using her creative energy to help her community through a new nonprofit project, Long Spoon Farms. After not being home for quite some time, I was really astonished at the price of the fruits and vegetables. And I wondered how I was going to be able to eat uh, the way that I want to eat, which is, you know, fresh, real food from the source. And I decided to grow my own food um, in my own household but it wasn't enough for me when I do things or take on a project or take on an interest. I have to just (laughs) take things to the extreme. So I wanted to get my community involved and actually start a community garden. And I had reached out to Ann Kobayashi's office, and I submitted the paperwork with her assistant, Cliff Kaneshiro, to start a community garden because I had noticed that there were none and we have so many community gardens there's a beautiful one in Manoa and a beautiful one in Diamond Head Um, but unfortunately it wasn't in the state funding then to be able to I guess add another garden so I thought okay well the next best thing would be to kind of start a grassroots project Um, just by starting to speak with people in my community. I had been gone for so long and asked them what they needed as far as food security and food safety. And I found um, through reaching out through people on apps like Nextdoor um, that really connected me to my neighbors that there were people in apartments in Kaimaki that wanted to garden but they didn't have the space for it. And growing up in Palolo, I'm aware that there are also households and residencies that have the space for gardening but for whatever reason like myself I don't have the green thumb or um, we have some elderly members of our community who can't do the gardening that they would like but everyone wants a garden everyone wants to eat from the garden and and grow Um, so I just needed to build a bridge between these two types of members of Kaimaki. Um, so I decided to start a web platform to offer that to people who live in apartments who want a garden who can't with um, landowners who would also like a garden. So the whole project impetus was to was for everyone to be able to grow and share food without having to spend astronomical amounts of money to eat the way that they want to eat. And it gives us a chance to form cohesion amongst each other and not just each other, but um, to connect with the land from which we're eating. Talking with you, it's just really inspiring to hear how you were able to make a window for yourself when doors were closed because your career was put on hold. You were locked out of Australia and you found yourself kind of asking this question of how can I feed myself in a manner that I'm used to sustainably? on right. a limited budget. You know, as a fellow gardener who's come late to the party, I always thought, you know... <laughs> Tell me about it. Well, I grew up in a condo as well. Um, so I never had the luxury, I guess, of land. I always mm-hmm. had containers and, I mean, fun kind. And maybe my grandma's kind of quasi-yard. She also was a container gardener. But I don't think I ever had the realization of... Oh, not realization, but maybe that fulfillment of realizing I am seeing from seed to fruit what mm-hmm. my hands have grown and I'm feeding myself and others. How has the learning process been and do you feel like now you're able to teach others to grow and garden? Oh my gosh, um, not without the help of others. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I like seriously, when I say I never grew anything before, starting Long Spoon Farms, I really mean it. Um, You know, like, I, you know, after I graduated from college in 2006 from UH, I moved straight to New York, and we don't, you know, I didn't have a garden in my apartment for five years. And then from there, I moved straight to um, living out at sea on cruise ships for five years. So, Mm -hmm. like, this is super new to me. This is all fresh ground. Um, But with the help of 
my community and you know what and my parents as well like we don't have any experience with growing but when we do it together um and with the help of other members of our community especially in Kamiki where we have we have the luxury like you uh, mentioned of of that space and also um with generations of gardeners here you just kind of soak it up like a sponge you know when you really want to eat from the ground you 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 learn quickly but i i mean i'm just learning even now so i couldn't teach others how to do it myself but with the help of my community and and my loved ones easily i would say i could do that (laughs) really enjoyed how your ideas of sharing growing and giving it really resonates in all that you do so how did you get the name long spoon farms from the allegory of the long spoons and when i was in intermediate school I went to St. Francis School for Girls. Back then it wasn't co-ed. And there's one of the nuns that taught me in the seventh grade the allegory of the long spoons. And I thought it was the most beautiful story that I had ever heard. Basically, there is a, a man who went into the afterlife and an angel wanted to show him heaven and hell. So the angel first took him to hell to see what that was like. And the man was met with this lavish banquet table as far as I can see and beautiful food and meals. But he took a closer look and the people there were emaciated and miserable and starving. And he wondered why and he took an even closer look and realized that they had splints on their arms to prevent them from bending their arms so they couldn't reach the food into their mouths so they were starving and he's like oh my god this is awful i need to see what heaven is like so the angel escorts the man to heaven and the man is met with the same circumstances in heaven at this lavish banquet table as far as i can see with all this beautiful food and people sitting around this long table and the circumstances were exactly the same they had the splints on their arms with the long spoons And so they're also faced with the inability to feed themselves. But what he noticed in heaven is that everyone was fat and well-fed and happy and laughing and joyous. And it was because they were feeding each other. That's how I got the name Longspoon Farms. I thought it was appropriate for this project. That is a wonderful lesson. Allegory to Longspoons, yeah. Yeah. And that is just um, a wonderful way to picture how you, with your nonprofit project, getting off the ground, you are out there in Kamaki trying with your long spoon to feed your neighbors yeah. Yeah. And, and looking forward, what's next on your list? Uh, gosh, my first priority right now is um, to get into the elementary schools. Um, I want to see the children learning how to eat properly again. I want to see them connect with the earth. Um, and enjoy the benefit of eating what you grow and growing what you eat. It's such a healing experience, all of it, from beginning to end, from planting the seed to filling your belly with it. And, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1984. I know what it's like to not really know um, how to feed your body properly. Because the generation before me, they grew up with, you know, um, frozen dinners and microwave food or canned and frozen food. Um, Not that they're all bad, but it's important to me that this younger generation now, if they don't have to, I would rather them not deal with the struggles of malnutrition and obesity or diabetes. Um, I want them to flourish. And I really believe that you are what you eat. Um, And I I know what it's like to have to retrain my taste buds, for example. I want kids to skip that step um, and not have to reverse any damage that has been done on the body. I want them to eat properly now. And I would also like to see once we're further along from COVID, from this pandemic, I'd really like to form a a farmer's market, a long spoon farmer's market in Kaimaki where we just have food sharing 
or several food sharing days a month where we just all come together and share the food that we grow and we don't have to pay, you know, astronomical amounts of money to eat right. That was Kaleo Samson, founder of Long Spoon Farms. It's a Kaimuki community-based online platform. It aims to connect neighbors looking for land to farm with those who have land. Its mission is to share healthy, affordable food during this pandemic and beyond. We'll have links to learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Up tomorrow, we salute two educators as we cap off Teacher Appreciation Week. Give us some feedback. Where do you stand on rail these days? Has your position changed? Should we stop at Middle Street or continue to Ala Moana as planned? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook or connect with Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.